The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. This is Robin Hunnicky with Game Maker's Notebook, and this is a very special Game Maker's Notebook. We are at PAX in Seattle, and we are talking with a bunch of indies that we like. And this particular episode is Gwen and Jennifer, both of them working on cool indie games that you'll hear about now. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. I'm Robin Hunnicky, and I'm here with you today on the Game Maker's Notebook. And with me here at PAX, PAX, PAX 2019-1919 is Gwen Frey, Frey, Frey of Chump Squad, Chump Squad, Chump Squad. Chump Squad. And we are here talking about uh, her game, Kine, and thinking a little bit about uh, what it means to be in the industry and in indie and uh, getting out there making your own games. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks Thanks for for having me. (laughs) Um, Tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up sitting in this chair across from me right now. Ooh, okay. So I started out uh, working as an animator, specifically like a tech animator in the games industry. I started out working uh, in San Francisco on different MMOs. And after that, I moved to Boston. I worked on Bioshock Infinite and the DLCs for that. And uh, when Irrational shut down, I, I got together with several other people and I founded the first company I founded was uh, the Molasses Flood. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're, uh, and that was great. I, I still love those guys. Like They're, they're still crushing it. Um, so I founded that company. I was one of six people making a game called The Flame and the Flood. I've heard of it. Yeah. That, that came out um, and uh, that, did, that eventually did quite well. And uh, we were pitching around our, our next project and I'm really proud of what uh, what we pitched and what they're currently working on now. They're working on something really cool. Uh, but while we were coming up with ideas, I, I had a, a small narrative puzzle game I really wanted to make. And we had to, you know, you know how it is. Like, it's very difficult to be yeah. in And there wasn't a lot of uh, opportunity for funding. And especially when you have a lot of employees, you can't take a lot of risks on, yeah. like, a narrative puzzle game. It, it really <laughs> didn't fit with what we were doing. So uh, I was pitching this game and this game I really wanted to make. And uh, it became clear, like, we couldn't make that as a molasses flood project. So over the course of about, um, like, nine months, I wound down my role there. I handed off my my uh, role as CFO and as a founder. And I founded a new studio that was just me. That's so brave. Yeah. And I, I made this game, um, Kine, and it's it's coming out. Where will it be? It'll be on the Epic Games Store. It'll be on the Switch, the Xbox, the PS4. And uh, when Stadia launches, it's a launch title on Google Stadia. Wow, that's so awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. So how long did it take you from uh, starting this second company to now? How long I, has it been? I started that in September last year. Wow, so you're really like booking along. Well, by the time I founded the company, I basically, like I knew exactly what the game was. It, yeah. um, by 
the beginning of this year, I'd finished the game as far as like programming design and all that. Yeah. And so the, at the beginning of this year, I got a deal. Um, I, I had a game, but in, in, I was totally willing to, like it was my baby and I was totally willing to push it out on like itch and maybe steam and stuff. And I had just put up a steam store page and I was like, Hey guys, I'm, this is my, my little indie project. This is my little solo thing. And I, um, I showed it to somebody from Epic and they were like, we will fund this. That's and, great. And they gave me some funding and I used that to, um, because at the time it was a much smaller title. It wasn't going to come out on all these platforms. Yeah. But Epic gave me funding and they, they, that gave me the ability to spend a bit more time on it and to hire some artists and to uh, translate it into nine different languages. And now it's coming out on all these storefronts thanks to that, that funding. It's amazing how I was just talking about this yesterday with Eka, who I interviewed yesterday, about the difference in your level of confidence and your um, – your drive when you know that there's someone that really wants your game that's funding it and that's helping you just even if it's a little bit sometimes it makes such a huge difference to oh, how massive. it feels right it's massive it, it's like I mean I started this thinking you know I'm doing this this thing that's just for me and it's fun and I just yeah. needed a break from like working on you know commercially viable stuff and, and this was just supposed to be my baby my, my fun little side part my artsy you know dumb thing yeah and to have somebody come in and be like no this is real and we'll give you money for it. And we want you to go for it. Yeah. That meant so much. You have no idea. Yeah. Uh, like I'm over the moon and I'm still really, really grateful for Epic for doing that. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit about the game. Oh, so this is a narrative puzzle game. It's about these um, three little machines that dream of being musicians. And they it's their story as they meet and form a band and try to find their big break. <laughs> I was really inspired at the time I was playing um, – at the very beginning of the project, I, I was um, watching a film called La La Land. Oh, yeah. And there's just something about that film. It's a film that's uh, it's about hope and it's about still having dreams. And I think yeah. that's something – we live in a world right now where, like, dreams and joy and hope is something we relegate – we think of as childish. It's, like, relegated to children. And here's La La Land. It's this film. It's, like, it's not a childish film. It's an adult film and it's beautiful and it's about still having dreams and pursuing them and – and the crazy things that happen along the way in life. And it was full of color and vibrant, and but not childish. You yeah. Know? And I wanted that. You know, I want to make stuff. I, hope isn't something that should be relegated to children. Absolutely not. You know, it's funny because um, that movie was uh, really inspiring to me as well. I have two tattoos uh, that I got the same night that I saw the film. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So um, I have a pair of kind of adoptive parents, I would say, like a second set of parents that I met in LA. And Edward, who is um, the um, the man in the couple, um, was a, a huge inspiration to me. And he passed away and I was in LA for his um, his uh, sort of funeral slash party. <laughs> and I went to see the movie with a friend. And at the end of it, I walked out of the theater and I said to her, that's it. I'm going to go get a tattoo right now. I have a heart on one shoulder and a champagne glass on the other for the messes that we make and the hearts that break. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> and so I totally know what you mean. The movie is really lovely because it is silly, but it's also serious. It does have that flavor of feeling about real world issues, but also not taking itself too seriously in some places. And then other places, it's really a gut punch. So yeah. it's a lot like life. I want to be one of those fools that dream. That's right. You it's know? so, so important to do that. So when you started working on this game, it was just you. How many people did you end up becoming uh, in terms of finishing the title? Okay. So after I was funded, um, I hired a friend of mine. Uh, a friend of mine runs a company out in the UK, Rick Naff, mm -hmm. called Surface Digital. And the, I was able to pull in about I want to say about four artists uh, around on average for about five or six months. And That's they helped great. me uprise the environment art and the UI. Yeah. So I, I just, my background's animation. So like I could do 
the art direction. I could do the character art and all that, but I, I needed help with just the environments. You yeah. know, there's just so much environment work. Um, so I hired people for that and I did hire a friend of mine to do the porting because obviously like I'm one person, I can't port all these platforms. <laughs> so all I did the um, the PC version of the game, but all the ports are being done by my buddy, Steve Elmore. That's great. It's really great. How long have you known Steve? We worked together at Irrational. So shoot, um, not quite a decade, yeah. but a large number of years. Yeah. And so a lot of people that we interview on the podcast are people that I've known or that Ted has known or other people that are interviewing has known for almost a decade or more. It feels like the games industry is a really tight community. Um, we've been going through a little bit of a moment lately with people coming out on Twitter and saying things that are really kind of challenging and upsetting about the way they were treated when they were starting. But I have found that even though there are those dark moments in our community and all communities, we're also really able to support one another in exactly the way that you're talking about. You can reach out to a friend and say, hey, I need your help getting something done. Can you pitch in? Can you make a difference? And I feel like, I don't know, this week I've really been trying to shine a light on the fact that we are supportive of one another and we have been kind, even though there have been times when it's not the best place to work. Sure, yeah. And I mean, part of it is just... um it also just goes down to business, right? Like yeah. you go, there's the people you've worked with in the past and that you know can get the job done. Yeah. And as, as you progress through your career, you know, early on, uh, you you kind of get a sense for these are the people that, that I can trust. These are the people that I can count on. And as time progresses, those people move into senior roles. And as time progresses further, those people own companies. And yeah. like, so the, like Rick Nath is my friend. He also owns a company. Yeah. Like uh, Steve Elmore is my friend. It wasn't a favor. He owns a company called Disbelief that does ports. Yeah. And he, I know that they'll do a great job because I've known him for many, many years and I've seen the work he does. Yeah. And it, it, building those relationships is just something you can't – there's no shortcut for that. That just there happens isn't. over time. Yeah. And it, it is um, – there are a lot of talented, exceptional people in this industry. Absolutely. So when you were thinking about making this, did you did you scribble in notebooks? I mean, what's your process? How did you get inspired? Like it's – I know that making a game is a really personal process for everyone. It's very different. What what was it like for you? Oh, I mean, it was an accident really. Really? Like, yeah. I mean, I've never designed – I'm not a designer like by trade. In the past, I was a uh, – I was always a – sort of like a tools program with the art team. I was a tech mm -hmm. artist, right? Um, and so when I started out and, and specifically technical animation and one of the earliest things I was doing for this was I was um, coming up with a prototype for a way a character could move around without using a run cycle. I didn't want to animate yet another fucking run cycle, <laughs> right? So, so I, I was know like, exactly what you mean. Yeah. And so I'm like, what if there was a game where, you know, you were this, I don't know, maybe like a dude with guns or some shit, I don't know. And you're some dude and you're, you're somersaulting around and you're kicking off of walls and that's mm -hmm. how you move around in the world. And I wanted to do an interesting way to move. And I prototyped it with a cube. Great. And uh, I just drew a face in the cube and I fell in love with the cube. And then I, <laughs> I tried to make a game out of it. It was like, this should be a game because we were, we'd shipped the, the flame and the flood and we were pro pitching games at work. I was like, I should make a game out of this. And I made a terrible game. It was like, <laughs> maybe this will be like a puzzle game, like 3D Tetris, right? Yeah. Like you'll you'll roll around through these, these like, you know, like the, I forget the name of that Japanese show where you have to like jump into like a certain shape. Like maybe you'll have to form a shape and like go through a wall or something. And it was bad. And um, so I abandoned it and I set it aside for, I think, like seven or eight months because we got busy at work too. Yeah. And I played a game called Steven Sausage Roll. Yeah, I know was, Steven Sausage Roll. Yeah. It was, uh, I loved it. It was great. <laughs> and it, that was the first – I had never really played puzzle games. Mm -hmm. That was like the first one. And I was like, oh, that's what you do. You just make the puzzle – like really small puzzles that you have to like move around. That was probably what I should have done. And then 
like months later, I'm like, yeah, I should actually do that. And then I actually did. So there was no like, I didn't sit down intending to make a puzzle yeah. game. Actually, it just kind of occurred to me like, oh, I should probably do that. Yeah. Like eventually, because I had this tech demo that I liked a lot. <laughs> and I really did like those cubes with the faces and stuff. So yeah, it was like if you put Steven Sausage Roll and La La Land in a blender. <laughs> that was like that how this perfect. happened. I can't wait to play it. <laughs> um, actually, when we were first working on Journey, we were trying to hire people to come in and do um, – like level design and, and and game design for the project, but we always wanted to hire engineers. And one of the tests that we had for that that role, which we called a field engineer, was moving a cube through space in a delicious way. So we basically say, no matter what programming language you want to use, no matter how much uh, animation or art you want to put into it, just get this cube to move across the space in a way that feels cool. And it was actually a really, really good test because some people made things that bounced. Some people made things that uh, ran and had legs. Some people, like one person, the person, one of the people that we hired, uh, made a game where the cube was on a weird bladed unicycle and you just mm -hmm. pushed it around and it went up and down hills and stuff like this. And it felt really cool to kind of carve around on this weird unicycle as a square, you know? Sure, yeah. I mean, I'm an animator by trade and I'll say like there is a lot of, there's a lot to the artistry of animation. Yeah. But the the concept, having an interesting concept and, or an idea of what the character is, understanding your character, imbuing a, some kind of soul into the character is like, uh, it's the most important thing. And it's yeah. not, it's not the follow through and the like the very technical, how do you make this, you know, uh, the, the physics look good and so forth. No, it's really the, the concept is the most important thing. Yeah. So. Making it feel something alive, mm -hmm. like it's something that you want to relate to. So what is the theme of this puzzle game? Is it that you can live your dreams? Well, it's this it's a story of these three these three musicians, right? And they they each have their own kind of goals. They each uh Quat's kind of um how do I put it? He's extremely confident and maybe shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Euler is like extremely shy uh and kind of gets into jams. He kind of gets into trouble. Uh, Rue's the Euler's madly in love with Rue for reasons that if you are a math nerd might make sense <laughs> uh, but yeah o Euler can get into jams the only one that can save him is Rue alright and um, there, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stupid math jokes throughout the entire thing cause... that sounds like an instant hit uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a very there's a very very small audience that it really fucking enjoys that <laughs> that part I think they might be giants is in that audience, right? There might <laughs> be what? They might be giants, the band that has uh, a lot, has similarly like a very nerdy kind of sense of humor. One of the things that I find about games and people that love games is that they do really let their their inner nerd kind of shine, which is something you see at PAX, really. You really oh, yeah. Do. Yeah, PAX have is you, great for that. You have a, a booth at the Indie Mega booth, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. And people coming by and loving your math jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is fun. It's fun seeing who stops and um, yeah, the the what it's compared to or, or that sort of thing. Um, what uh, what do you feel about being as part of the mega booth? How does it feel to be down there on the floor, surrounded by indies? Does it feel different? Were you there before with uh, the Flame and the Flood? Yeah, the Flame and the Flood was in the indie mega booth too. Yeah. that's why I was really eager to get caught into it. That's it, cool. It's a uh, 
Um, it's a great way to experience PAX. Like I couldn't do this alone. Yeah. Like, it's really overwhelming to try and set up your own booth and like get all this, like the and, power and the carpet. And there's just, just like so many different things. Just not cost effective, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Uh, like you could argue over whether or not how important it is to go to shows at all. But I don't think I would be able to go to a show if it wasn't for the Indie Mega booth. Yeah. I feel like the shows for me, even though, yeah, they might be a little bit expensive at times and they're definitely energy sucking. <laughs> like, you yeah. definitely by the end of a couple shows, like we saw each other at Gamescom as well. Like, after a couple shows in a row, you're definitely kind of flat. But it seems to me that, like, the energy that comes from being around fans and seeing people love your game is so helpful in the long run, especially mm -hmm. if you're not quite done yet. You know, if you show the game a little bit before it comes out, it really helps you with that last little push and feel well, excited about it. You there's know? certain things about shows. I highly recommend it for, um, there's a phase maybe uh, where you're kind of close to done where you're working in your on-ramp. Yeah. Nothing tests your on-ramp or the, the, how easy it is for people to grok the very beginning of your game better than a show. Yeah, I agree. basically you used to just see people playing that first part. And it, you, it tests your marketing materials. It tests how well the game resonates, like how, yeah. how much you can grab attention. I will say shows, um, they tend to, if you have, for instance, like um, a co-op, local co-op game, those tend to do better at shows than they do in the real world, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, so there, it can be a little misleading in certain ways. But for testing your on-ramp, there's nothing better than a convention because all you'll do is sit there and watch people come up and try to pick up the game as quickly as possible. It's bad if you have there, – there's certain games where I think it is bad, and I think a lot of puzzle games probably don't do very well at shows because any game where you have to sit down and sink into it, Yeah, you know, like people don't want to sit down and sink into a game at PAX. You, know, you right? get a little bit self-conscious. You feel like people are waiting. You don't want to look dumb. Yeah, or, or it's even – yet there's definitely – there's always that, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also just you come to PAX, you want to play all the games, you want to see all the things. <laughs> like you'd want to sit down for an hour and like really experience a deep, meaningful <laughs> thing, you know? That's just not why you're here. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're going to be able to get the game on literally every platform. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the game before we wrap up the interview? Um, no, I hope you guys enjoy it. I think you will. In fact, I'm pretty sure you will. <laughs> so tell me, how can people find you online? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dire Goldfish on Twitter. <laughs> and that sounds fantastic. That's probably the easiest thing. That's my personal account, but I, all I do is talk about kind. It's like my life. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you, Robin. Cheers. Hello, everybody. This is Robin Hunnicky joining you on the Game Maker's Notebook here at PAX 2019 with Jennifer Snyderite of Nyam Nyam. Did I do that right? Yes, perfect. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and she's here uh, to tell us a little bit about the game that she has uh, just released and also talk a little bit about being in the indie scene. So why don't you begin by, uh, let's talk about when we first met. How long ago was that? That must have been about eight years ago yeah. at Indiecade <laughs> in uh, Los Angeles when I was yeah. still in the fire station in Culver City. Oh, that's fantastic. I remember that show so well. You had just uh, started to show Tengami, your first mm -hmm. game. And I remember thinking it was so cute because it had folded paper, which everyone knows I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember because you were doing some paper craft stuff at the time. I was. A lot like in your, like, you posted a lot of photos. Yeah. And I think you were even thinking about making a game. I was. It? Well, I guess Luna yeah. is a little bit that aesthetic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Indi Indicate was huge for us. 
because that was like the first time the game got any kind of recognition and it was still in development at the time. And um, I remember like I was uh, like lying in bed and I woke up and I had the email and it said, congratulations, you got accepted. <laughs> and I just like screamed <laughs> <laughs> because I was so excited and like so happy. It was such a scene too. Like back then there weren't that many um, sort of avenues for independence to show games. Like there wasn't a presence so much at E3 or at PAX and getting into Indiecade was like one of the only ways you could get any kind of press about yeah. doing a smaller game. Absolutely. It was also a really great meetup time. We had a little conference going mm -hmm. and everyone would kind of talk. I think it might have even given a talk about Journey at that conference. I might have talked a little bit about having just released it or maybe getting ready to release it, don't recall. Um, and so you were, how many were you back then? Three. Three, yeah. Three. I remember you being very nervous, like, I don't know if we're going to make it all the way to the end of this game yes. when we first talked. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was such an ambitious uh, project. So uh, Tengami, for people who are not familiar, it's, a, it's an atmospheric adventure game that takes place in like a Japanese-themed pop-up book. And in order to make it, we ignored all the advice that was available on the internet. <laughs> and we created our proprietary, like we created proprietary technology and uh, our own engine yeah. in, in order to make the game. And uh, we thought, oh yeah, we can make this game in two years. But then it ended up being three and a half years. <laughs> and like towards the end, like we ran out of money. Yeah. Yeah, it was, was really tough towards the end. Story of as old as game development exactly. itself. <laughs> <laughs> but you were able to finish it and it was really well loved. I think people really, really enjoyed it. It had such a quality to it. Mm -hmm. What was the inspiration sort of behind Tengami? The inspiration behind Tengami was so um, Phil, who was a co-creator on Tengami, um, when we set out, so we used to work together in AAA, had a company called Rare. And when we decided that we wanted to kind of like, you know, make the jump, we decided pretty early on that we wanted to focus iPad because this was when the first iPad came out in 2010. Yeah, it was like really cool to do a game for an iPad mm -hmm. then. And so we were really like thinking about, you know, what, what, what types of experience shine on the iPad. And I think at that time, and we weren't the only one, you know, this is also how games like Monument Valley came about. It's like games, because with the iPad, if you're touching the glass, you're reaching into the world. Yeah. So games where you can manip manipulate a world, like seemed like to us the best fit. Yeah. And so that reminded us that we, as kids, we really love pop-up books and how like turning the page and seeing like the structures unfold gives you like such a magical, you know, feeling. You're yeah. just like, why can something as ordinary as paper, you know, yeah. do something so beautiful? <laughs> and we wanted to capture that kind of feeling in the game. Yeah. I remember being really blown away by it and also just thinking, wow, this is like a new era for us because we can start people like us can leave AAA companies and, you know, first party publishing and mm -hmm. move into indie. And it was like a very, it was a very young time for the community. It's very different now. There are a lot more games out and a lot more people are in, are able to do what we do, which in some ways is really awesome. In other ways, it's kind of scary. It is, isn't it? Because everyone's so talented. Yeah. Everyone is so good. <laughs> it's a little bit like sometimes I do these interviews and I'm like, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs> I was talking with someone from Nintendo today on the floor and we were talking about being olds and just like how we're like, remember when there wasn't any Twitter and you just hung out in the lobby of the hotel and that was how you mm -hmm. caught up on everyone's life and you didn't know what was going on with everyone all the time. Now it's like you see somebody and you've, you've got in your head their most recent 
kid photos and like all their vacations and where they've been and yeah. stuff. It's just it's a very it's a very different time. I feel I actually feel that's an advantage because I guess you and I we are the first generation that like grew up with video games. Yeah. And I still like video games back in the day, you know, like if you had maybe black and black and white, you had yeah. black and white pixels. But still like it sparked my imagination and yeah. I you know, I see your imagination like so much that we are, that we're here like nowadays. So I also feel like it's like a really like it's a privilege like to have grown up with it and grown into it. It's true. And that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot is just how games will change as the way that people are exposed to games diversifies and kind of shards in mm -hmm. a way. You know, the games that you make in Roblox are so different than the games that you would make in, say, something like Dreams, which I was actually talking about yesterday here on, here on, on the show floor. So, um, so tell me a little bit about your new game. The new game is called uh, Astrologaster. It's a comedy game <laughs> in which uh, it's based on real history and you take on the role of a man called uh, Simon Foreman and you fancy yourself a doctor. Uh, you have a practice in London and a number of people come to you with their personal, professional and medical problems <laughs> and you are trying to help them by doing astrology. And did you have to get really into astrology while you were working on this game? Yes, I had. <laughs> did you know that we just had a super portal that was that was an alignment across nine planets? Did you know this? No. It just happened. I was looking. I should have hired you as a consultant. <laughs> I was looking at a video about this online the other day, and the guy was talking about how if you lay down on your back on Wednesday night at midnight California time, you would have like all these planets lined up behind you and facing. Mm -hmm. the new moon and it was like just the time for the whole planet to get together and stop these horrible fires and like put out all the fires and he was so impassioned about the planets and how rare it is for them to all align and stuff like is any of that contagious when you read about it or is it more like yeah people used to believe that and it seems weird now <laughs> so I was actually really drawn to it from a game designer alert systemic point of view yeah because like what I keep wondering regardless of whether you believe does astrology work or not right like why are people like why are people drawn to it and like like how do you teach something like that because if it's just you either have the gift or not like you know yeah. that's not like a movement that's taking on so if you like like looking at astrology and analyzing it kind of from a systemic point of view that was like super fascinating and to see, you know, that it's a, you know, it's a system that can prove itself because you can repeat, you repeat it, right? It's like the, the outcomes are repeatable yeah. and, and other people can confirm them. So in that sense, it's a, it's a little bit similar to, you know, something like mathematics and it's like, it's actually like more logical than you probably think it is. Yeah. And so I, it was, it's super interesting and it's also like really interesting to see like the history of it, so the like what we do in the game is kind of, is based on the writings of the real Simon Foreman, and then there was some famous astrologer like uh, John Dee who used who used that system. But so it's called horary astrology, and horary astrology is still used nowadays, but it has evolved like quite a bit. And so that was also interesting for me to see like that you know how how the system evolves over yeah. like over well, centuries. Yeah, I've been looking a lot into. Um alchemy mm -hmm. and uh, magic and the writings that were happening in like the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of um, people that would hold these seances in their parlors and they would do automatic drawings and stuff. And I got really interested in 
the automatic drawings of women mm-hmm. in particular, women who would be sort of using their channel to God to communicate with regular people, mm-hmm. including men <laughs> who were very powerful, um, about what they should be doing. And this idea that there's this like nebulous system that um, that you have access to or that you can somehow figure out um, and that it empowers you has always been something I found to be kind of it's it's always somewhere in a culture. There's always some mm-hmm. place in a culture where there's this idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be astrology or the I Ching or, you know, divination rods. I mean, it could be anything, right? But there's always some part of a culture where people are like, yeah, you know, we just, we need a medium here. We need someone to be between us and what's happening because it's a little too hard to know. And then you just put your faith in someone else. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, going back to that, to Simon Foreman, I don't think that, like, he wasn't successful because his astrology was very good, or, you know, <laughs> we know that it wasn't, but he was because his approach to medicine was holistic. You know, he looked at the, you know, body, mind, and soul. Yeah. Whereas all of the others, they were just like, okay, we're going to bloodlet you, we're going to purge you, yeah, you know, and then, on you. <laughs> and then that's that. And I think, you know, even nowadays, like, people are, People are looking to that because I, if I think about like, you know, like my own experiences going to the doctor, yeah, it's like very, you know, like they're explaining you all of these things about your body and I'm like, oh, actually, I don't understand anything, any what you, any of it, like, can I trust you? <laughs> you know, like, can I trust you that this is the right thing? And I think this is what people are looking for. And also with medicine, you know, people are always saying, I don't know, in 10 years, We've solved all of the problems, but I don't think, you know, I don't think that's true. There'll always be people, you know, like you're too sick, like you can't be helped anymore. And, you know, I feel like just like the astrology, that's also where we as video game creators come in, right? You know, we are there for everybody. Yeah. And it's not just about, about giving too. hope, but it's also yeah. just about being there when it's not good. And maybe there's no perspective that yeah. it goes anywhere, right? But we are still there. We are still there for you. And one, I think that's so important. One of the things that's so that's so interesting about that is this idea that we need we need reassurance or some kind of some kind of shape from mm-hmm. the culture that we're in. Like it's important for us to feel like, hey, I I have a community, I have a I have a connection. And I actually had an experience uh, sort of recently with doctors. I was on the airplane, and the woman behind me on the airplane um, had essentially some sort of a, of a of a problem breathing and stopped breathing. And uh, I had to help her out of her seat and then call for a doctor. And three doctors actually on this plane that I was on who all spoke different languages collaborated and just using their hands and a pump, they were able to keep her oxygenated and keep her heart running for almost a half an hour before the paramedics showed up. And it was really kind of amazing to watch three strangers just mm-hmm. make such a difference in the life of this woman that like, she could have just slumped over in her chair and no one could have noticed. And then we could have been halfway through the flight before we realized that she was dead, you know? And yeah. it was it was almost spiritual to watch them collaborating. I think they had her like they had her pump they were pumping her heart. They had they had her in CPR in a pattern and timed within almost about a minute of me calling for them. You know, they were so fast and they really knew what they were doing. But it did seem like magic. Like I've kind of felt like I was watching someone do a ritual, you know? Uh-huh. It was intense. Do you think that um, when people play your game that they appreciate the humor of it? Because that's a hard a hard thing to do in a game, right? Like, I feel like that's one of the things that people really like about your game, but I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, I think they, 
you know, reading, like reading the reviews and like comments on social media, I think they absolutely do. Like a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, this game has passed the five laugh test. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the humor, the humor, yeah, the humor is such a, a big part. And um, Catherine Neal wrote the game. Um, I knew, that's why I hired her. I knew that she would be perfect for yeah. it because she does comedy really well. I mean, she's also very funny in person, but you know, it's different, like having to write comedy and it's, then it's a different thing. Are you writing comedy for TV, theater, you know, a movie or for a video game? Yeah. And especially in video games, there's not a lot of game companies that are, you know, doing comedy. No. And so that was a huge part for us. And um, in the end, so at the beginning, we just thought that this would be, it would only be text. But so towards the end, I think the last six months of the project, um, they said we need to have voice acting to make the comedy, you know. To make it read. Yeah. Because sometimes when people were playing it at shows, um, I think they had trouble like reading like the characters' motivations because obviously you're reading it in your head, but you're not entirely sure if you're, you know, reading, like delivering the lines in the way it should be. Yeah. And like once you added the voice acting and like that made like a, I say a 500% difference. <laughs> it's not very <laughs> mathematically correct, but yeah, the voice acting was huge for it. And it's really funny. I, st I like when I was debugging it, and I had to replay the scenes a lot. Like yeah. I was, I was still laughing. Still laughing. Then still you having you a good it. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to write my own jokes for like hosting the GDC awards, for example. And it's so hard. I always ask for help from friends. And even when you write a joke that you laugh at, you're never quite sure if someone else is going to laugh at it. Mm -hmm. There's always that panic, like when you, right before you read it off the teleprompter, you're like geez, I hope I don't get booed or just like silence. You know? <laughs> Even a boo is better than silence, you know? But with a game, you never know because you'll never you'll never really be there. I mean, I guess you get to see it. You were here. You had it on the floor last year at, at IndieCade? Uh, yeah. Or no, sorry, we were at the at, Mega Booth? Uh, in the, in the Mega Booth, uh, PAX West last year, then yeah. PAX East this year. PAX East the year before, and oh, we also wow. showed it at GDC. So you got a lot of chance to see it on the floor uh -huh. and see how people were responding to it, which is kind of one of the benefits of being in that in that community. Mm -hmm. We've also shown a bunch of games in the in the mega booth, and so we find it really valuable. I went down there today and walked around, saw everyone's stuff, including Frog Detective, which I'm so excited about. <laughs> <laughs> and I also went and got a fluffy goose shirt, so for the goose game, because oh. I really wanted the goose t-shirt. I was afraid they'd run out, but I got one in time. So Yay. I feel like my packs was totally successful. Are you here by yourself or do you have members of your team with you? Uh, I'm just by myself. How many of you of there are you? Mm -hmm. So Nyam Nyam is actually just me. Oh, really? And um, I uh, so I come up with the concepts for the games that I want to make, and then I try to find the perfect collaborators. That's super great. And How did you decide money. that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did you decide to run your studio that way? So obviously Tengami, we were three, and all of, all three of us we were together in the company. And then after we finished Tengami and finished porting it, we kind of like arrived almost at this identity crisis where we weren't sure. Did we, was the company Nyam Nyam just the Tengami company? Yeah. Or did we want to be, you know, like a company that sticks together for the next, I don't know, 20 years? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we came to the conclusion, and that was like amicable and very, you know, that, yeah, like that the company was created to make Tengami and we kind of we fulfilled our purpose as a group and like we were ready to kind of like go separate ways. That's cool. But actually, interestingly enough, um, once Astrologaster like got a little bit further on the way, Phil, mm -hmm. who co-created Tengami, because we, could be, you know, we kept in touch, we kept talking about it, and he said, oh yeah, actually this game sounds really cool. 
like, you know, <laughs> do you want to work together again? <clears throat> That's cool. I think that the idea of being flexible is really becoming en vogue in, mm -hmm. the, in the scene now. Like at the time when we met, I think having your own studio and having an office and like being official was like considered like mm -hmm. having made it. And now a lot of people are just like using tools like Discord and Slack to just be distributed. It saves money. And it also means you can work with lots of different people that you might not normally get to collaborate with if you had to be co-located. Yeah. Um, do you have any kind of strategies or styles of development that you have specifically developed because of the idea of working in a more flexible network? It's a difficult question. Like, does everyone you work with work in the same time zone? No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. I think um, maybe I think my strategy is to maybe let go a little bit more. Then, so obviously I used to work, you know, like in a, in a big company yeah. and you see people all the time. Yeah. And I think back in the day, like I was just maybe like with some people, you know, like I went like every couple of hours and I'm just like, hey, how's it going? Can you I know, see how's it? your task progressing? Do you need anything from me? <laughs> <laughs> and now it's kind of like, okay, you know, okay, you know, um, Phil is in the, uh, in the Philippines right now. So cool. it's like a, a nine, a nine hour time difference. So I know I'm probably just only going to talk to him twice a week. Yeah. But so, you know, I need to have my list. Yeah. I need to be really diligent. I mean, covering, that be covering everything. And you need, yeah, you need to be super diligent with communication. Yeah. Because, yeah, every, nobody, nobody is around when you're, you know, when you're making a, when you're talking to someone else and making a decision. Yeah. And it's really important to filter all of that information through. Yeah. But, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, not, I'm not perfect at it, but that's like what I look out for the most. It's funny because I have a similar situation where I'm on the road a lot because I'm raising money for Phenomena or promoting our games or working with partners on specific projects. And so when I get back to the office, it's, yeah, like maybe a week has passed and I haven't really seen a game. And then when I look at it, I, I've learned to sort of see what it is, not what I thought it was going to be. Yes. <laughs> and That's a very good way of putting it. Based on what's mm -hmm. there. And, you know, a lot of times magic happens that I didn't expect to have happen. Today I was just actually on the floor at the PlayStation booth looking at Watam, watching a kid play it. And uh, it's really close to coming out now. And it's so great to watch someone mm -hmm. playing the the intro to your game when you worked on it for years and then you know it's good and the kid was smiling so big the whole time mm -hmm. that it really it made me smile and like I really I realized like yeah it's worth it sometimes to just let the let the magic happen you know and sort of let things be a little different than what you might have expected mm -hmm. but they're still good right like games yes. are very flexible that way I guess absolutely and I think if you if you do it that way so, like, this is a thought that I really like about games it's because, obviously, I mean, I don't know about your company, but I suppose it's still a, how many people are you? Maybe 15? We're 22, 22 now. 22, yeah. yeah. Like, I do like the idea that you do see the personalities of the people that work on your game shine through, yeah. you know, that they can put something of themselves in it. Yeah. And I think you can only do that if you allow them to do that right it's like true. if there is that space because if you're like oh, oh it's me you know i'm that i'm that one creative genius and everybody's <laughs> just here to service me and nobody it's, likes yeah. that person <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to get that and so that's what i really love when i look at tengami because i you know i see rio in there i see phil i see myself yeah. and with astrologaster i mean we had in total 50 people working on it yeah, that's great just because they were, you know, like 12 voice actors. Yeah. We had like six singers for the songs, like so many people. And it just makes me really happy, like to see just like a little bit 
of all of these people in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like a synthesis. It's yeah. like a recipe made from everybody's ideas and can get the little bit of flavor of each person. I was in Mexico City over the summer and I, I ate at uh, Pujol, which mm -hmm. is like one of the it's like one of the top 20 restaurants in the world. They're famous for this mole that they make. They serve the mole on a plate, so it's just sauce. And then you get bread to eat the sauce mm -hmm. with. And it's like the mole on the outside, the big circle, is the old one. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle is the new one. And the old one that I ate was five years old. It was like 1,900 days old or something mm -hmm. like this. And I have to say, I've never eaten anything like it in my life because it had a flavor profile that touched every kind of taste bud in your mouth. It was so delicious that it actually brought me to tears. Like mm -hmm. I was I was overwhelmed with experience, like yeah. umami, you know, it was so <laughs> much um, that it was almost impossible to believe it was food because most food has a flavor profile like, oh, it's a little bit sour and then it's a little sweet or it's a little bit spicy and then it gets salty or whatever. And it was just the flavors just kept going and going and the more you ate, the more there were. And it, it was like kind of I imagine that, like, you know, the everlasting gobstopper and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> that that must be what it tastes like. But I feel like games can be that way, like especially games that live a long time, like a game like The Sims. You know, if you know the team, you can see individual mm -hmm. people's contributions to the titles, you know, that you worked on, especially like when you add expansion packs and, you know, new ideas to the game. And it really does become this amazing, yeah, it, it, an amazing moi of like all these different different ideas. Have you started thinking about your new game yet? Yes, I have. Are you, are you pitching it around right now? Yes, I am. Oh, that's great. Did your meetings go well? <laughs> I think so. Yay. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so where can people find Astrologaster? Uh, Astrologaster is uh, available on Steam, Itch, Cartridge, uh -huh. and on the App Store. Okay, fantastic. And when will we hear about your new game? Uh, in two to five years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. You're the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.